Welcome to the Aliographic Podcast. I'm Giorgio Rutia from Kingston Libraries in Victoria. And today we have a really special guest, and I'm really excited to talk to him. Bruce Mutard is one of the biggest names when it comes to comics in Australia. He has published lots of short comics and a few graphic novels. The Silence is my favorite, a really outstanding graphic novel. And he was also involved with the Perth Comic Arts Festival, and now he's in charge of Australia's most important comic art awards. He really needs no introduction, so let's go straight into it. Welcome to the show, Bruce. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, and uh, you know, I I just said that you need no introduction, but mm. who is Bruce Mutard in Bruce's words? <laughs> okay. Well, I guess uh, I often start with a question like this answering by saying I'm a veteran maker. I've been in the comics making game or involved with comics for a bit over 30 years now. Uh, here in Australia, primarily, I am primarily a maker. Uh, most of those years I, were, I was making comics. So I started out with self-publishing and then I uh, uh, became published by others. So I write, I create stories, I draw them, uh, colour them if need be, I letter, I do everything. So whatever's on the page in one of my books, I've done it. Okay, so I'm not a a, uh, a person who is part of a, a process or a system or a team, if you like. So, but my interest in comics extends beyond that to uh, academic, where I've done a master's and now almost the end of a doctorate uh, in comic studies. Um, occasionally I teach it, and as you alluded to, uh, I also get involved with what we call comics community work uh, here in Australia. So that's uh, setting up festivals or being involved with organising programming uh, and now, of course, the Comic Arts Awards of Australia. So I guess comics is my life, is the way it's in the shortest, most succinct version. I've been lucky to make comics my life one way or another for 20 odd years or more, full time and uh, part time before that. So there you go. How's that? You've done a lot of things, but let's go a little bit. Um, let's go to the beginning. So when did you start reading comics and what kind of comics did you like? Uh, well, probably like most people, you start to read comics when you're very young, when you're, you're little as a, as a kid. Now in Australia, this is the 1970s, um, there wasn't much available, uh, and which is to say what was around you. As a child, your world is literally around your house and local neighbourhood, not much more. Um, and that's all you can imagine. So my first encounter with the comic was with Tintin. Um, and I think it was uh, Tintin in the Broken Ear. And I saw that in a school library and I fell in love with it straight away. I needed to find out more, but on the back cover of the uh, those hardcover editions, I would have the... Um, the rest of the series. And I quickly discovered nearby, uh, I went to my local public library um, and discovered that Asterix was also there. So of course, fell in love with those as well. I had to try and read all of those. 
And we, it took a while, but I managed to read the entire series of both um, because they were obviously out on loan with others at time. So over time, I and then I just kept rereading them. Uh, also discovered some of Disney comics and other things, but there wasn't a lot else around. It's just my local newsagent really didn't have anything. Um, and so therefore I didn't have a conception that there was more. Um, and uh, there were occasional old gold key comics and things that my mother or grandmother would pick up from op shops, but again, not a lot around um, because the 1970s were the fellow time for comics in Australia. You know, almost no one was making them and no one was publishing them and comics were really just primarily a, uh, a second-hand market if you went into certain shops in the capital cities where you could find them. But of course, at that age, I wasn't doing that. So that's uh, how I started. So of course, reading Tintin and Asterix gave me an immediate appreciation of the Ligna Clare School. And uh, what we I later discovered was Bunda Desine and, and their European style. Um, and again, that was my conception of comics. I didn't see superhero comics or that American style, really, so apart from Disney. So that very cartoony, um, classic cartooning uh, style was what I associate with comics and to a degree influenced my own, although um, particularly more the, uh, uh, the, the Linda Clare School of Europe. So, yeah, so that's, that's the beginning. Uh, I was only in my late teenage years that I discovered a, an issue of Heavy Metal Illustrated in a newsagent, uh, which I think had a, a inky Bill cover. Um, and inside was one of the, uh, I think the first part of the, the Nicopol trilogy yep. and uh, other great European artists of the era. Um, and then I realized, holy smoke, what's this? I've not seen this before. This is amazing. And, and then um, I can't remember how I discovered the local comic shop, but I think a lot of us had that moment where we first encounter the standalone comic shop and you realise what a cornucopia of comics really are. Mm. And, and then, of course, that's, that, was, that was sold by them. That was it. So from about 18 or 19, I think, uh, I was going regularly and discovering the world yeah. of comics in its much broader uh, uh so and then the idea of making it making comics uh started to seed through uh maybe within two or three years particularly with uh underground comics um the comics of robert crumb and the alternatives like uh band of graphics were doing in the day uh eight ball and there was the era when those comics were starting uh, uh to coming out as serials like eight ball hate uh Love and Rockets and so forth. And that that was me. Um, anyone who can see my work would put those two together pretty quickly and go, yeah, yeah, you're easy. So, so I, I was actually going to ask that, but uh, so you think that the turning point when you decided that you wanted to make comics was maybe putting those two together, the European and the underground, American? Mm. Yeah, well, I believe that as a maker, uh, it requires uh, inspiration. So the idea that you can make something, you know, in any medium, um, is first 
stirred in you by being exposed to works. But it's like, uh, you know, you can be exposed to the paintings of great Renaissance painters, but realize it's just too remote, you know, it's a skill set that's far beyond you, so you can only appreciate it. Some people are, on the other hand, motivated. So for me, looking at a lot of the uh, beautiful European uh, comic side, I thought that was a bit beyond me. But when I discovered the underground artists like Robert Crumb and all of those, and I suddenly, and, and at that age, I was what, 20 odd, um, you're certainly well primed to receive that kind of scurrilous type of material. Uh, oh, I can actually do this. I can actually really do this. This is just pen and ink on paper. I don't have to do elaborate colouring and painting and uh, beautiful colour art like the Europeans do. Oh, right. And then that gave the entry. Um, okay, I can do this. So, and of course, without this is pre internet and uh, how to books. I mean, they were around, but I wasn't aware of them. Um, you just put pen to paper and start um, without knowing, you know, draw boxes and put pictures in them and uh, write words in speech bubbles. That seemed to be all it required. Far more sophisticated and uh, complex than that. But but it does seem a very low bar of entry. So, um, and therefore easy one to step on board. And then you realize before long, it takes a lot to learn how to do it at a professional level. But uh, I wanted to do that. So therefore I just kept doing it um, and learning by making all the mistakes. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's how we learn. But, yep. Um, you, you, you've already mentioned quite, quite a few different comics, um, mm. but uh, you know, if you were trying to pin down, like, what would you say are your main influences in the comics yeah. that you make? Uh, okay. I mean, they've changed over the years a little bit, but the one that uh, certainly got me going was uh, Hup Number no. 1 by Robert Crumb. Um, and it was Last Gasp, I think it came out in about 1986, but I didn't see it until about 89, I think, 1989. Um, and eight ball, uh, Dan Klaus, um, because my earliest works were very much in the spirit of those sorts of comics. So uh, uh, me, in a way, being given permission to do the same thing to express myself as they had done, because they were more or less doing and making and saying what I wanted to say at the time. And uh, but. My drawing style was much more influenced by crime in that period, but also uh, some uh, European artists like Elateri Sepieri um, of Druna, uh, Marlo Minara, and so forth. What I wanted to draw like uh, was like them, or like Jaime Hernandez from Love and Rockets. I love that realistic, beautiful uh, line art, and uh, they drew figures so well, and of course, you know, uh, beautiful women so well and as a young man that's you know what you're trying to do yeah. um, and uh, but I couldn't draw anywhere remotely as well as they could but I wanted to go that so I did a very cartoony style early on lots of cross hatching um, but my goal was to draw like say Jaime Hernandez and therefore so I was constantly combining and consuming comics and seeing what kinds of medium. I love the work of, say, like Bill Shinkovich and Dave McKean. I did try early on to see if I could create some of that multimedia sort of effect that they did, but I just couldn't. 
make it work for me. Um, so I just put that aside and said, that's okay, they'll do what they do, I'm gonna do what I can. Um, so those are the sorts of key. So a lot of people say that you know, they can see Jaime Hernandez or Kwame in my work. It always comes back to those two and they'll be true. Yeah, they would, that would be the two key. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and they're, they're good influences to have. Definitely. I think so, yeah. 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 Um, so um, changing a little bit the topic, but uh, I know you've been working hard on a thesis. Yep. Um, which I believe is almost done. Uh, yeah, it's pretty much all done by the printing, which is happening now. I think it's at yep. the binder right now. Yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. So congratulations on that. Thank and. You. Um, what can you tell us about it? I know it's hard to summarize the thesis into <laughs> yeah, a couple of yeah. minutes, but you know, what was the thesis about and what are the key things? That... Okay, uh, the title of the thesis is called The Erotics of Comics. So it doesn't have much to do with erotic comics per se. I'm using the term erotics for an old uh, Greek term from Plato, and it's called the desire or desire to know in his term, or in my case, I'm using as desire to make. So most comics scholarship and studies um, is about is analytical. It is looking at works of comics and understanding what are the messages being said and the, and the structures and all of these things that are implied in works of art, like literary studies, like visual arts, cinema studies and so forth. Um, so they're very much interested in the, uh, the, the way of telling and how those messages come across and what impacts they have and all the various psychological and uh, social, cultural, political impacts they have. Um, and comic studies is the same. Why? Because almost all the scholars in the area uh, or have been trained in those other areas, like literary studies, English studies, uh, sometimes history and so forth. So they've got that training. And the toolkit for analysis that they have is from there. So it's no surprise that they look at comics as another object of scrutiny. But in doing so, I realised that the one area they don't really know much about is, well, not just the how, but why comics are made in the first place. Like, why are these comics that they're looking at there? And I realized, well, that's the insight I can bring because I've spent most of my career making. And I'm not actually interested in uh, analyzing existing work so much because so many others are actually already doing that. And, you know, mm -hmm. their insights and all of these things are really good. I have, you know, I'm hardly going to criticize, but. Uh, there are those few works of formal analysis like Scott McLeod's Understanding Comics, uh, the work of Neil Cohn and so forth. I actually have a lot of problems with those. I don't think they really um, uh, get to the nub of comics all that well. And I thought about going down that path too, explaining it better. But then I realised, well, no, what is it and how do people make comics in the first place? So the erotics is, uh, I've come up with a, a tool, if you like, uh, called the cycle of erotics, which explains the origin of makers. Where do makers come to make comics in the first place? It could apply to any art media, but I'm sticking to comics. And then how does a work get made? So sometimes I, I phrase it as answering the uh, question that most authors uh, laugh about and, uh, and despise, which is where do you get your ideas from? 
you know, yeah. we're, we're frequently asked that yeah. and we don't really know they're there. I'm actually, my cycle in the Rogers comic is in a way answering that question. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that sums it up. So the thesis has, a, it's practice based. So there's half a dozen actual new comics. Uh, 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 there's nine comics, but there's a couple of compilations. And then the exegesis. And uh, so there's six uh, publications altogether and they'll be presented in a nice big presentation box and so forth, um, which will all get made up at obscene cost for each one of them, but nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> so you've done your thesis actually as a comic itself as well? Yeah. A series of comics. 70% of it is, uh, is comics, yep. Um, the exegesis is a written component, which is just part and parcel of doing a, a doctorate uh, perspective base. You must contextualize in, in, in writing. Uh, it's very, very heavily illustrated, I might add. Um, half of it is illustrated as well with not just my work, but up from other comics, because yep. it can't just be solipsistic and be my own. It has to be contextualized in the border uh, comics world. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, four hard covers and two soft covers. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the question that I have then is will we see some of those comics published? Yes, you will. Um, in order to prepare all the comics for publication, obviously you had to uh, prepare them digitally in, in design and, and make them up so it's not a stretch to uh, hit print and say, we'll print these up as uh, separate items. Um, I don't have publishers for them at this stage, so I might just do a run myself uh, for each. Uh, some of the comics, the short ones, have been published in academic volumes overseas already, but they're behind paywalls, they're hard to access uh, if you're not in academia, even if you are in academia, if your university doesn't subscribe to those academic databases, you still can't see it. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit of a pain as far as that goes, so I will put them out uh, myself. So later, maybe by the Perth Comic Arts Festival this year, I might put them all on the table. The graphic novel Bully Me as well. Um, and the uh, so-called belated sequel to The Sacrifice, which is not the full one trilogy promise, but The Return, I'll have that on the table as well. So that's, yes, the answer is, uh, the answer to your question is yes, you will be able to see it. The exegesis is uh, another matter, but we'll, we'll yeah. see. Yeah. Uh, of course, um, living a librarian and you mm. know, uh, the, <clears throat> this, uh, this group uh, representing librarians and libraries, uh, mm. the next question is, uh, you, you said you publish it yourself, but uh, mm. would any of those comics be available through library suppliers or mystery? Yeah, I'm well aware of what's needed to do that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, yes, I'll have ISBNs, which is crucial. Um, and uh, I will get in touch with the uh, notable uh, library suppliers to list them, probably through Queenie Chan's Bento Net, which yeah. is set up to, to do that, um, because I'd like libraries to get it. Um, I have this Undoubtedly, we'll go into this later on, perhaps under the Comic Arts Awards of Australia, but that is a, a key feature of the Comic Arts Awards that I want to build, this ability to get far more Australian comics into the library system. Um, you know it and I know that so little of it is actually there. Um, and 
some of it's structural and some of it's just a lack of knowledge. And I think on behalf of makers, I think it's too hard to um, promote to do, and it's not really, but we can solve that problem um, in some cases. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So yes, I want it to be in libraries, to have no fear. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And we'll, we'll talk about that later. So, um, yeah. uh, what would you say, um, because you've been doing that thesis and, um, mm. and you've been making comics for so long, you know, what do you think are the key and distinct features of comics as a medium? Uh, yes. Um, in comic studies, we often call this, or some people call it the definitional trap, which is trying to define what makes medium. Um, and I call it the definitional, uh, sorry, they call it the definitional project, but I call it the definitional trap, which is to say, trying to define the medium is just not possible um, and not even desirable. On the other hand, there are very many features about the medium which make them distinct. I mean, the first thing you see are the, uh, the pages with multiple or repeating narrative pictures of some sort or non-narrative in some cases, and uh, maybe or may not, mostly of them have speech bubbles, not all, but most do. And you, as soon as you see those signs, you know you're, you're likely to be in front of a comic. Um, they're not, I call them um, sufficient but not necessary uh, conditions for a comic. Most comics are also published as uh, books or pamphlets, or now online, of course, in so many different formats. So they are very much a, 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 a medium of the eye. That is, you need to read, you need to see them, even though there are some people working on Braille versions. Uh, I don't know how that works, but apparently. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, and these uh, characters, I mean, the medium, as an art medium, is capable of conveying any kind of subject matter, literally anything. There's no limit, okay? And although it's been long associated with genre stories um, and uh, or stuff for kids and so forth as, as it has been, we've seen in the last two decades in particular that there's no type of story, fiction, non-fiction, journalists or otherwise, that comics can't deal with. It's up to makers to utilise it, and which is why I... I say, you know, in terms of definitional areas, it's just too broad. You just don't know what's coming. Yeah. Um, there's always going to be something on the outside of your definition. And to me, that's just why I don't bother going there because there's always exceptions and they're not yeah. exceptions, they're part of it. So, um, but, and so therefore being such a broad umbrella, I think, you know, just those key features will signify a comic, not always necessarily so, there are certain times where visual arts, cinema and others will appropriate aspects of it. Um, and uh, are they comics or otherwise? Well, you know, you need to look into it more carefully. Um, yeah, it's, as, as comes to be the case with so many of these arts areas nowadays, nothing simple anymore. You know? Yeah. yeah. Mm. So on a more personal level, I guess, um, what is it about comics that, you know, uh, seduces you? because obviously mm. you've dedicated yourself to mm. comics and comics <laughs> and yeah. comics. Yes. Uh, what is it? 
Um, for me, it's primarily to tell stories. Um, I love cinema, films uh, in particular. I think I, I long wanted to do that uh, most, but that was a, 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 in the 1980s when I was at the age where you have to you start to think about what medium you're going to work with. That just seemed too hard, too big, too much. You had to go to film school, specialist technology, specialist everything. Um, and uh, it, it was just not a, I made an attempt to try and get into film school and all that. And I just could, I just didn't have the temperament or the personality for it. Um, but I still wanted to write and tell stories uh, visually. And at those years, I did not make comics. I mean, I wrote stories and I drew pictures as il illustrator, but I didn't um, put the two together necessarily until those key influences started to play in at the end of the 1980s, like I mentioned earlier. And because I could, I had skill sets in those areas, um, it became a natural fit to put them together and make comics. So comics for me uh, just has this ability, because it can tell any story, that can have a really, really cinematic quality to the way you frame. So a lot of people see my work as that, as having a very cinematic kind of quality to the way I frame my pictures, the way I position characters uh, in the mise en scene uh, as, as uh, they use in there. Sometimes they call it mise en panel uh, in comic studies, but uh, all of that. So I do see them like my movies, but just in comics. So that's somehow I, I do it. But then again, I bring in a whole lot of features that don't appear in cinema, uh, but can only appear in comics, you know, with the, the sweat drops and all those um, emanata and so forth that you can see. I don't always use them. Uh, you don't see them in The Sacrifice. You don't see sound effects. But in other stories, I'll, bring them. I'll use the full panoply of them. Um, it's whatever's in the service of that particular story as to why I choose. Um, so, yeah, I just feel, you know, I don't create stories or ideas anymore without thinking that it's going to be in a comic. Mm. So everything is comics for me. Yeah. Uh, it's my medium. It chose me or I chose it. doesn't matter anymore. It's what it is. Um, so, yeah. So, and I have... A lot of people who appreciate what I do, not just here, but over the seas now. So I'll just keep doing it. Yeah. Actually, that uh, that that's a question that I wanted to ask as well. So, um, mm. uh, have you had success in publishing your works outside of Australia, and what mm. has your experience been? Well, yes, I have. Um, I've had two graphic novels published in France from the same uh, publisher, Sailor or I think it's uh, this and that in uh, English. Um, <clears throat> they uh, were relatively small publications. I mean, the publisher is actually a, a well-established, uh, successful publisher, but they publish uh, graphic novels and comics that are not the standard European album uh, or Franco-Belgian album, rather. Uh, and... Um, so that to the the sacrifice has been translated and uh, extended with that extra section uh, to come out in German later this year in Germany, um, as uh, the title is going. To, it's called the Eye of the Cyclone uh, in German, um, 
the reason being, and this is always something that what a title means in English doesn't always translate, as you yeah. know, someone who speaks multiple languages, you know that someone, yeah. there are, or, or even if there are actual um, words that literally translate, but they don't carry the same meaning. Yeah. So uh, Germans have a word, Germans language has a word for the sacrifice, but it doesn't have the weight and emotional resonance that it does in English. Um, or in uh, the case of uh, French, uh, bully me, they have a word for bullying, but again, it does not mean the same as uh, uh, it does in English. So souffre douleur um, literally translates back into English as pain sufferer, which doesn't make much sense here either. But it doesn't matter because in France, they understand exactly what it means and how it's used. And so I learned that. So that's one of the impacts. Um, I also signed a, a deal to have the silence translated into Polish and Czech. Uh, just in the last few months, so maybe late this year or early next, we should see them coming out there. So I, I have more interest in my work from Europeans than almost anywhere else, actually. So I'm actually, I think I actually look towards them more there, that part of the world, more than anywhere else now because they just are responding to my work. So why wouldn't I think about, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, and not just in France, they're a bit all over. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think that your work is actually well suited to uh, European readers. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, 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 yeah. We haven't lucked out on a Spanish one yet, but that's uh, <laughs> never mind. We're trying. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, moving on to awards. Um, yep. So they're an an important part of recognizing and celebrating mm. some of the best works being published. Yep. Um, so we've had the Ledger Awards for a few years, but yep. now they are changing. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in fact, the name's changing too. So yep. what can you tell us about the change? What can we expect? Okay, so as you mentioned, the, uh, the Ledger Awards was named after uh, an Australian comics maker, but primarily an illustrator uh, of Peter Ledger, uh, who worked in the 1970s and 80s primarily. Um, including uh, his most notable public uh, uh, publication with colour work on the um, George Lucas-funded version of uh, Uncle Scrooge comics. Um, but uh, the name change is happening because I've taken over as a director. The patrons and directors of the ledgers, uh, Tim McEwen and Gary Challoner, have stepped down um, and uh, there's rather than, I won't reiterate the story about why the transition happened or how, but I've decided to take it on because obviously to me it's important that they continue um, because the awards, in the case of the ledgers, is not necessarily saying that these are the absolute best, but that a group of half a dozen judges are saying these are the significant works produced in Australia or by Australians overseas in that calendar year. And it's really about showcasing, it's about pointing them out. Um, I think you know already, and we've alluded to it with the issue of uh, lack of availability of Australian books in libraries, but uh, Australia being a large country geographically, 
where each of our mainland capitals are a long way away from each other. We pretty much have to fly to each of them. Um, driving is a long time. And it means comics community in Australia is atomized a bit. Uh, and most makers are self-publishing. And the business of trying to get works put into shops or into libraries or uh, otherwise is quite a difficult uh, thing to do if you don't have access to the major distribution networks, uh, which are there's separate systems for libraries as well as uh, mainstream bookstores. So with that in mind, um, the awards can showcase these works to all these people in different parts of the country and to uh, librarians and to uh, bookshop owners and other things if we too, if they become visible to all of these people and also to uh, comics festivals, comic cons, uh, writers festivals and so forth. So it's doing the job of building awareness and what we're trying to showcase, well, if you're interested in what's been produced locally, these are the standout works. These are the ones that um, uh, we consider really significant for a host of reasons. And therefore, if you're interested, chase these ones up yes so that, that's the primary aim i do see it as primarily a community building and awareness exercise as well as celebrating and giving a, a, a kudos and a award to those who have made the effort to make these works and we're showing that what you're doing is so good please feel encouraged to do more you know what i mean yeah. because that's as makers you know we don't get a lot of feedback anymore uh, you're in the community, you get a lot of support from your community, but sometimes you just want to be acknowledged that oh, it's actually pretty good. It's a good work, you know. Uh, it may not be uh, a lot of money uh, in the uh, award, or but it can do. We know awards boost sales anywhere in, in a lot of instances through uh, cinema and literature and so forth. So we'd like to see comics get to that stage at some point. Uh, it won't be any time soon, but it, you know, it never knows. So, so there's all those motives. So I just took the job on because uh, I was in a position where, you know, it's, just, it's a voluntary position, so I don't get paid to do it. Uh, but I'm in a position where, because the PhD is ended, um, I have more time. Uh, it takes time from making, obviously, but I feel I'm in the best spot and to do it. Um, to put the effort in uh, because I've done commerce community work quite a bit already and so I, I see the need and in some respects I say I'm motivated by the idea that uh, we're building infrastructure and support networks that were not around when I first started so when I first started in the 1980s there was nothing 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 no internet no idea how to we didn't know you didn't see Australian comics anywhere at all much. Um, I wasn't aware of Fox Comics, but that was only if you went to Minotaur. And that was it. Um, so how, how do these things get made? Where can you show them? Where can you see them? And you, uh, the young makers or even established makers now, it's nice to, if we can have infrastructure and say, well, no, 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 you should make comics because you've got all this infrastructure here. That means that your effort will be rewarded you'll find an audience you might get acknowledged and so forth so yeah that's that's my motive uh in many respects yeah for for me for me actually it was so when i started working at libraries and i started mm. focusing on comics and i 
I started digging into, okay, well, what Australian creators are there? What book should I be reading? Because obviously I didn't yeah. grow up here. Uh, you know, uh, what do I need to learn about? Uh, the, the Ledger Awards was a great discovery for me because mm. it really, uh, it allowed me to kind of go through what was, uh, you know, receiving awards there and mm. was being recognized and it gave me mm. kind of a path. Okay, so I yeah. need to find this one, that one, that one. I need to read this mm. and that. and. Yeah, you know, and then you start finding out more. But yeah, uh, yeah. So it was definitely great in that sense. So, uh, uh, so they're changing the name. What's the new name? So the new name is the Comic Arts Awards of Australia. So uh, we use the plural arts only because we want to make sure that writers, pure illustrators, or otherwise, all feel included in the idea that there is a series of art skills involved. Um, uh, there'll be a, a rebranding exercise happening, which will take probably uh, won't really come into force until the next cycle uh, for uh, uh, the following year, because uh, uh, the process to get these awards on was was a bit hurried, as you know. Last year's awards was not until December, yeah. um, but the whole COVID scenario and a whole lot of problems. But in this instance. Uh, we needed to get, in order to have the awards on this year at the Perth Comic Arts Festival, which is the first weekend in July, we needed to get going now um, yeah. because it, it takes quite a while for the whole process of uh, entries to be judged and assessed and prepare the annual and so forth. Yeah. It takes a long time. So they are, I had no time to rush. So we just had to rebrand and then uh, uh, with a name and say it's transitional. Um, and, and uh, you know, the reason for the name change was just partly a number of reasons, but one of the main ones was that the Ledger name just really wasn't biting, and a lot of people confused the Ledger with Heath Ledger, the actor, as it got some connection, which of course he does not. Yep. So, uh, and there was some scuffle about Peter Ledger as well, which may or may not, may not be true, which is also was a bit uh, uh, damaging. I thought, well, let's just nip that in the bud, let's just do the name change and a rebrand. Uh, to start with uh, under my uh, tutelage and uh, go from there. Yeah. You said that the, there is a kind of a transition period and, mm. and all that, but um, are you planning to, for example, add categories into the awards? Uh, yes, we're going to have that conversation um, because it is... I understand that, you know, in places like libraries, you have broad categories of uh, understanding books like junior, young adult, general adult, and so forth. Um, you, a librarians look at and buy those, with, uh, works for those with that in mind. So it's nice to have that sorted for yourselves beforehand um, so that you know what to look for. So, uh, yeah, and, and, and there have been other ideas for categories that various people have thrown around a lot over the years. So I think it's part of the uh, the new era. I think we can look at that. The very first edition of the ledgers did actually have all these categories. Um, uh, I think the second one had less and then they structured it in the way they did nowadays where there are none. I understand that. I still like to keep that general, yep. uh, non, not too specific. But I think the category of uh, junior or 
middle grade and those sorts of areas, young adult that, that the publishing industry broadly uses is still a, is, a, is something that I think we can work with um, to make sure that these are known. So yeah, yeah, it, it, it's, there are a lot of stakeholders, so it's got to be a consultative process. I'm not uh, a tyrant here. I can't make edicts and direct in that way. So um, I don't want to as well. Um, but yes, so that's my answer to that. But uh, to what exactly and how long it'll take, I don't know. Yeah. Interestingly, that question actually came from a creator. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned to you before, I asked some mm. creators to, mm. to send some questions. So that actually came from a creator. Uh, oh, good. But, but yes, you are right. Uh, in libraries, it's very much very junior, middle grade, YA, mm. yeah. adult. Uh, yeah. And those classifications, yeah, well, we use them all the time. So mm. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I have a question here, uh, and you'll probably hear Berner's voice in this. Yeah. Uh, he says, 2068, what part do comics play in Australia torn apart by the climate wars? <laughs> uh, if there's any paper left, if there's any electricity left, if there are any people left, um, will comics still be a part of it? Uh, yeah, I would like to think so. I mean, by 2068, I'll be over 100, so uh, I won't be here. But uh, unless I'm some kind of mutant hybrid with my brain in a jar on the side and I'm controlling a robot, uh, I won't say no to that uh, if that happens. But um, uh, look, I think comics will always be around. Uh, how big a place it will have in culture? I've been around too long. I've, 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 you know, comics has been marginal in Australia and on the edges for almost all its time in there since they started being made in the uh, uh, 1930s um, outside of as comics rather than newspaper strips. And um, I don't see it really getting much bigger than that, but, uh, uh, or, or, but it has come more towards the centre and the mainstream in the last 20 years, like it has everywhere around the world. I mean, what's happening in Australia in terms of comics and, and the scope and the broad uh mix of stories that are being told i'm seeing everywhere i've traveled a bit to comics festivals and makers and things around the world a lot and it's the same everywhere um and countries where comics were really marginal uh they're moving into the um not into the mainstream or into the center of culture but becoming prominent in a way what it means is a lot of people just want to make them they want to tell their stories with comics so I can't see that disappearing because the more comics that are out there, the more people who read them, they're going to be inspired to make, which is what my whole cycle is about. So therefore they will be around. Are we seeing them in paper form or uh, in digital form? Well, we, you know, that's impossible to predict because we don't know what kinds of technology and mediums we're going to have in mm. uh, 50 years time. We just don't know. Uh, but I can imagine comics will be a part of it. The tropes and ideas and storytelling and uh, all these things will certainly be a part of it so yeah yeah um it's impossible to know and makers will gravitate to them regardless you know because that's you know yeah. if they want to make something and be seen they'll just go to wherever that is just, there is actually a second part uh, yep. to Brennan's question yep. so you know now he's bringing us back a little bit closer and mm -hmm. he's saying now it's 2030 
which Australian comic book artists are making graphic novels and how are they getting published? <laughs> which ones? Well, aside from the ones who are currently making already, uh, who are well known, uh, aside from myself, I'd like to certainly be thinking I'm still kicking around doing that in eight years' time. Um, I'm sure Chris Gooch will certainly be there. He's pumping them out for the new book every year by the look of it, so uh, he'll do it. Uh, who else will be there? I think um, Claudia Chinia Akole, who picked up an award last year. She'll, if she keeps making, she'll be uh, very prominent. She seems to want to do it. Miranda Burton might still be making. Uh, her new book will be out this year. It's going to be a blinder, I think. So I think that'll be a, a bonus. Um, Sarah Searle, she's committed maker. She's making all the time. I think. They undoubtedly will be finding their works published. Will they be published necessarily here in Australia? That's the question. A lot of these books I'm mentioning, some of them are here, but a lot of them are being published elsewhere now in the US and all that. So, which is a great thing, it's terrific. Um, and the irony is that they're getting published and their books are being made elsewhere and coming back into the country but it doesn't from a creator's perspective it doesn't matter so long as they're being seen and made who cares um so i have a feeling it'll be more of that it'll be yeah. and but certain creators will be found online so like simon hanselman you know his works were discovered online through his tumblr uh yeah. and then is now published in multiple languages around the world um so it'll probably be more of that um, where so I even as a as a teacher of comics and creators, I would say put it online, build an audience because from a publisher's perspective, they often want that. They want something that's already got its readership, um, already a built in. So, and and in literature and elsewhere, this is the same. Um, you know, they're encouraging a lot of self publishing through Amazon services and so forth. Build your audience, prove that you have a readership and a market, and they were interested. Um, that's just how things. That's just the impact of technology and the uh, services that can come with these uh, things. So that's how it will happen. So there'll be creators we don't know about. One other thing about the Ledger Awards is, you know, we get two hundred odd entries every year, and there's always creators who you've never seen or heard of before. They come from nowhere, Literally, seemingly nowhere. Obviously, they haven't. They've been making for a long time. I've even seen some coming through this year. And I'm looking at where on earth is this coming from? This looks amazing. How is this? Where? What? Yeah. I always think I knew everybody in Australian comics. Plainly, I don't. So by 2030, there will undoubtedly be some well-established names, but there'll be a, a, a bunch of people that, up to the moment, we don't know who they are, but they'll be there and will be recognised in that time. We don't know who they are at the moment. They're coming. They're on the road. They're they're coming here. So that's how I see it. Constantly evolving. Yeah. You you've already alluded to this, but do you think Australia will ever have a larger comics industry and a more uh, interesting oh yeah. support from publishers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Australian book publishing has been slow. I mean, when I was published by Alan Numan, there was definitely a real push to explore the market, and because there wasn't one uh, locally at that point in time. They were the first to really go in um, without knowing if it was going to work. And it hasn't quite worked out the way they thought. Um, there's a whole host of reasons for that. But they are still publishing, but they're aiming at middle grade 
uh, junior and young adult, not so much adult anymore. Yeah. And um, because that's the, the largest sector of comics now. I mean, the, the largest publisher of comics in the world is Scholastic, um, uh, in English, that is, um, and by a long margin. So far bigger than Marvel and DC and those. So yeah. um, that's clearly a growing market. Um, my next book will be aimed at that age group, middle grade. Uh, so because clearly there's momentum in that area. And uh, from a maker's perspective, you need to go there. So I think because, again, the availability of books in that area, the obvious interest in that area of the market means makers will make the rational decision, I need to make something in that area. And of course, the more comics there are, more people get inspired, but also as makers themselves get older and they have children, I want to introduce comics. And you're going to see these things. And I go, well, I'm now inspired to make one. I this stuff here is uh, not that great. Blah, blah, blah. I'm going to do a better one than that and put proof to the test. So, so I, yeah, I think it'll definitely, uh, by 2030, it'll be quite a bit bigger than now. Uh, by uh, just keep growing the path that it has, and it'll be uh, really exciting, actually. I think it'll be uh, uh, quite a bit. We're in for a good decade or two, for sure, um, provided the world doesn't get blown up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, uh, kind of starting to wrap up a little bit, um, yep. at Alia Graphic, obviously, we want to raise the profile of comics in libraries and education. We also want to raise the profile and increase the availability of Australian creators and graphic novel yep. libraries. So kind of putting you on the spot a little bit, you know, um, how can the Comic Arts Awards of Australia and libraries connect and what can we do to, to support each other? Okay, well, I think uh, for starters, aside from, uh, you know, once we build the infrastructure to get comics into the libraries that the, uh, there's a concerted effort, and this is something that we makers can bring in too, to appear to show up and promote, talk about the works so that um, uh, librarians everywhere are not only aware, but in, in support of uh, uh, local works, in addition to all the ones that they are bringing in because they have built-in readerships already. You know, I'm sure people want to be reading their latest Batman, Spider-Man, and all of that sort of stuff. I have no, no issue with that. Um, and uh, so building that awareness, it's just going to be a slow process of working in tandem to make sure that I want to make sure that makers around the country are aware of Alia and also that what they can do and not to be afraid of the libraries as being something too big to handle or something uh, that they cannot get access to because I don't believe that at all. Of course they can, but you know, they do need to meet. Wait, so a conversation has to start. What do libraries need from us? And what do, uh, and then on the other side of the conversation, well, what can we bring to you? What can we do to help build awareness of those comics and things in your collection so that uh, readers go through? So uh, I think perhaps at, uh, like the Comic Arts Festival, for instance, uh, I think at some point it'd be great to have the uh, not just obviously awareness that from a librarian person to be aware that they're on so they can come along and just have a look, see, um, but also 
having uh, representation there as well so that uh, they can make the public aware uh, that uh, these collections are available as well. Um, I have seen that done uh, at the Home Court Comics Festival, the local library, the city of Norcott used to set up a big table. Yeah. And you could actually, if you were a resident and had a library card, you could actually borrow the little comics uh, there at the festival, um, which was quite a really good idea, I thought. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a model I'd like to see, you know. Um, in, so you can, um, mm. in, in North America, the, mm. the graphic novels uh, and comics roundtable, uh, which mm. is like the American group, yep. like what we do with the American one, um, they, they actually have uh, uh, a relationship and, and uh, you know, they, they have a presence in um, a lot of Comic Cons, including mm. New York Comic Con and, and a few others, and they, uh, mm. San Diego Comic Con as well. So they, they actually have like a pop-up library at the Comic-Con yeah. uh, and they uh, and they also organize or curate some of the panels and things like mm. that as well. Yeah. So, so definitely, uh, uh, you know, we're talking already, so that's good. Yeah, uh, no, it, what you mentioned is exactly that. Panels on these shows as well, exactly that, exactly. It's just about building awareness, uh, cooperation and, and, and making the public because they're the ones who buy comics and read them. And where you're in the service of helping them as as we are as well so it's a natural fit yeah. uh, to be working together okay well, what do we all need to do to make this work because the only thing that's going to make more comics in the world is if more people read them yeah and libraries are great people <laughs> and most people actually start reading uh things like that uh the library actually because <laughs> it's it's free and you can try different things you know exactly uh, yeah. So that that that's actually um, me personally, uh, and I think it, it applies to most people. Is where you try different things, yeah. where you discover new things and take mm. chances. You know. Yeah. So yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And after a while, you end up with a library like mine behind me. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's yep. right. Yeah. Okay. So finally, uh, we always ask our guests to tell us about three comics or graphic novels that they've read recently or Yep. It doesn't need to be recently. Uh, three graphic novels that they would like to recommend. These are just three. I've read a lot of good ones, but uh, these will do for the three. Okay. Yep. First is um, Time for Lights Out by Raymond Briggs. Now, a lot of people might be familiar with Raymond Briggs through his comic The Snowman or Fungus the Bogeyman or Where the Wind or When the Wind Blows. Uh, but this is the latest, uh, came out last year. Um, it's, it might seem a very elegant sort of melancholy title because it's his last work. It might well be his very last because he's quite an old man now. I think he's pushing in his late 80s, 88, 89, something like that. Um, and it's a, a meditation on endings. So it's a mix of comics and uh, also prose, uh, rhyme, poetry, collage and so forth. But it really does... As someone who's guided several relatives through end of life stages, as I have in the last few years, um, it really resonated. It really does speak to uh, both the that generation uh, who were arrived in a world of certainties, even though you know they were born during the Second World War or just before. But <clears throat> the world now 
evolving and developing so fast they're left behind like you saw a picture there of a remote control you know like so many people of that generation it's a mystifying thing they don't really could never really understand really really beautiful in that way um yeah another great one is stephen collins the gigantic beard that was evil uh he's a british cartoonist he had a, a regular strip in the evening standard or uh something like that um but again it's an absurdist type of surrealist type of work, beautifully rendered all in pencil. Um, it's lovely cartooning style, but rendered in pencil all the way through about a, a really ultra conformist uh, sort of uh, Western bureaucratic type of a world where everything is exactly the same. Nothing, everything occurs at the same time of a day. Uh, no one really has any uh, invention or life, and yet, in his case, for some, some unknown reason, his beard starts to grow. It, you don't have beards. No one has beards. But then, as you can see, it just keeps growing. It never stops. And, of course, everything starts to get upset. They don't know what to make of it and so forth. It's hilarious. Uh, Elegaic has a lot of comment about uh, the way we organise our lives as well as this absurdist humour. Beautifully done. And another favourite of mine... Uh, is Bezamina by Nina Bunjabek. You know it. Um, of course, her art is absolutely staggering. This incredibly finely rendered cross-hatching. Um, it's just utterly gorgeous to look at. Her previous books are great. This is even better. Um, and even though it's a very adult story as, uh, as well, um, but it's still really pungent and powerful, also uh, has that really strongly European quality um, as well. And I mean, I'm, I'm in, totally in love with the art. I mean, I, I, I can't cross-hatch like that to save myself. There's no way, but that's just gorgeous work. Another great one, of course, is um, uh, 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 oh, yeah, uh, my favorite thing is Monsters. Um, yeah. by Emil Ferris. Um, hopefully the second volume of that will be out later this year. Yeah. Um, but that's fabulous as well. I, I picked those, but they're the ones that have like really hit hard. Uh, yeah. said, oh gosh, these are just up there with the greats for me. Um, so there you go. How's that help? Great choices. Definitely. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, and you should be able to get these in the library. So these should all be accessible. Yeah. You know, that's the beautiful thing about them. Mm. Yeah. Uh, thank you for your time. Um, oh, you're welcome. Um, uh, uh, I've had fun. It's been a great thank chat. you. Yes. And uh, yeah. you know, good luck with uh, uh, this year with um, with the awards and yeah. with the Perth Comic Arts Festival as well and all that. Mm. And uh, I look forward to to your books as well. Yes. Yeah, well, comics. you'll. You'll hear about it, and there'll be a, a special double edition of the uh, the annual this year as well, which will include last year's as well as this year's uh, award yeah. winners. So that'll be uh, in your mailbox come July, probably. Excellent. No worries. Thank you. Uh, okay. Thank you, and take care. No worries. Thanks, Yogi. I'll see you soon. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Alia Graphic Podcast. Hit the subscribe button on our YouTube page and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Aliagraphic, email us at aliagraphicinfo at gmail.com 
and check our blog, aliagraphic.blogspot.com for updates, monthly roundups of news and new release titles.